Hey, Nate. Hey, Tom. I was having trouble following Andre Carpathia's lectures on neural nets at Stanford, that course he did. Why was that? It was really convoluted. <laughs> yeah, it was. Welcome to the retort. <laughs> How are you feeling this week? I'm feeling tired and I'm feeling cynical. Let's start with the tired. Why are you feeling tired? I'm kind of jet lagged. We're recording this in person, which is fun. So catching up in person. Okay, you didn't get taken hostage by an AGI or anything? <laughs> yeah, ask me. Ask me later. <laughs> I'll so, see. So why are you cynical then? <laughs> I'm cynical about the state of our world, which has become previously for me, it was partially observable. And as it becomes more observable, I have become more cynical about it. What are we getting observations into? Uh, for me, the reality that we are building and deploying systems in ways that short circuit and prevent our ability to think about what those deployments mean when the irony is these systems, these tools should be inviting deliberation, reflection about what the purpose of the activities are that we are automating. What does the short circuiting look like? Literally, it looks like a half dozen or a dozen hit pieces about how hard it is to book an automated vehicle ride in San Francisco rather than asking what is happening to roads in San Francisco, in Arizona, as they become saturated with a new kind of mobility that is really not comparable to human-driven cars. Like, this is the fallacy that we've been fed, is that automated vehicles are a vehicle that ha whose driving has been automated, when actually it's more like a new form of activity interacting with public infrastructure in ways that no one understands and which we have not been invited to think about constructively. Yeah, it's like self-driving is in some ways a more direct way to get people to understand that than autonomous vehicle. I guess maybe that's not the point. It's almost like there's a new word that you can add to that context. I mean, the thought that's bubbled up for me on it is... And I say this really not as a critique of particular companies or particular researchers, or it's, it's more a statement about the field as a whole is that we're not, we're not automating driving as much as we're privatizing roads in a new way. Fleets are being integrated into an existing, let's just call it an interface, the road lanes, intersections, bypasses, whatever. 
in ways that from a legal point of view, from a regulatory point of view, and from a commercial point of view, is structured as you don't need Lyft anymore. Now you can use Waymo or now you can use Cruise. When actually, and this is what happened also 100 years ago when cars originally were deployed, so to speak, they were called horseless carriages. They were called, they were compared to the previous form of mobility when actually now it's so obvious that it's really nothing like horses at all. But we're still stuck with this metaphor of the car, the vehicle, the human behind the wheel. And we, the metaphor is that now it's just an algorithm doing those things. Does, does AI make this transition take a different form? As like the horse to the car is very tangible. Well, I think that's what I'm getting at is it's tangible because it speaks to our experience. And right now, most of us have not yet had the experience of regularly riding in what are now called automated vehicles. Once that changes, that metaphor, that facile analogy will start to fall apart. And we'll be talking about these things in new ways. How much does this has to do with the like, actual routing capabilities of them and kind of changing mobility and how that intersects with the like kind of decision making and how the actual driving is done? Which I think is where a lot of my criticisms have landed. Just like the general perception among robotic learning researchers is no one wants their family driving in an autonomous Tesla. Like people are okay with Waymo and Cruise and that's primarily based on design decisions and marketing. Then there's kind of the realm where you're thinking that I think is harder for people to talk to. Right. I do think a lot of it is, a lot of it can be described technically in the sense that these fleets are able to be geofenced and deployed and simulated as well as actually interact with cars at scales and with degrees of intensity that are new from a modeling point of view and from a control point of view and from, you know, there's a lot about the stack that invites those questions and those are open research questions and there are researchers both in industry and academia including myself who have worked on that question technically there's also this other dimension which is the what we would call the phenomenological one or the experiential one which is that municipalities governments stakeholders have never had to think in this frame before. They've never had to think on the level of how would we want to define the flow of traffic if we could, other than through some very contrived scenarios where, you know, there are these stories in like maybe Singapore or these other sorts of like hyper controllable environments where you can modulate, you know, the stop signs or the, the traffic signals across the city grid it, so to make it so that in principle, if you wanted to drive it like 30 miles an hour straight through a city, you could because the lights would turn green or turn yellow at like the right moments to afford that. 
So there have been story apocryphal stories about that in some European cities. But now the promise of these tools, and again, this is not a critique, but the promise of these tools is the ability to intervene on dynamics that may have always existed, but that now are ours in principle to command and ours to induce and then control what we induce. That's the feedback loop that's new here. That's the difference, I think, from 100 years ago. Can you give an example? So you're saying that you can control what you induce. So it's the idea that AI can intentionally or unintentionally make those impacts. There's this famous line from the movie Chinatown, this film noir that came out in the 70s where... uh, (laughs) You know, Jack Nicholson plays this like private eye in, you know, L.A. And he's ostensibly solving a murder mystery, but it becomes this like sociological inquiry into like, it's like The Wire, but set in like 1930s L.A. where he finally meets, you know, one of the head honchos of like city planning who has this famous line where he says, I realized at a certain point that I could do one of two things. I could either bring the water to L.A., or I could bring L.A. to the water. And what he meant by that was, you know, L.A. sits in the middle of a desert. And if you actually want to nurture what would later become the second largest city in the United States in that environment, you would have to intentionally and strategically reshape, like, the flow of water, infrastructure, agriculture, all sorts of things, so that there could even be a housing market there. There could even be the conditions for life, the conditions for living in that place that would be desirable. So it sounds like science fiction to say it, but history tells us it's not, which is that there's no reason in principle why deploying self-driving car fleets at scale won't affect the housing market differentially, right? The fact that now these cars are deployed in San Francisco is, you know, in relation to the East Bay, which is where we're recording right now, or the South Bay or other parts of California. Historically, these things have affected the housing market. Historically, they have intervened on even things like where it makes sense to apply for loans, what terms you get on those things, because it's about how you get to work. It's about how you get to activities that matter to you or that you need to sustain yeah, there's more access in San Francisco now. And like with the like the experience of riding a self-driving car versus an Uber is very different, even if the practical implementation is pretty similar in the Bay Area. And we haven't even got like we haven't gotten to the downwind things about like congestion, like self-driving cars potentially removing congestion and all of these things, which I think are probably pretty far out from the issues people are concerned about. That is the flip side is that, I mean, I'm giving the more dystopian flavors of this, but the flip side, yeah, of course, is that you could control for or mitigate congestion at scale. That's not, so again, to return to my cynicism, it's not that I'm somehow distrusting or hateful of the technology or that I'm, you know, disappointed in the fact that these, you know, systems are billed as safer than they actually are or something like that. Although that's probably true. <laughs> Almost certainly true. Like any <laughs> uh, any company in the space is going to act like 
it goes down to low-level engineers to file reports and things. And the incentives are definitely in place to make it so rounding down on situations across the board. And the companies that have different stacks and infrastructure set up give them different abilities to manipulate that data. That matters. Which is like why I think Tesla is most likely to be data manipulative because their stack is the least transparent and like they classify everything differently than all the other companies. We should be angry about it. We should be worked up about it. The grounds for my cynicism are that what I think really should be the positive parts of this, the encouraging parts of this, the inspiring parts of this, the hopeful parts, is that it's up to us now to articulate what good traffic flow is. But there seems to not be either the journalism or the academic incentives or the corporate responsibility or the municipal leadership to facilitate that inquiry. Yeah, it's like the self-driving car companies should be able to easily, like there's fleet caps now, but they should be able to easily spin up a amount of, like they know when there's going to be busy times and they could probably eliminate surge pricing by dynamically adjusting supply, even though they may not be incentivized to do this and there's no like there's no oversight into doing this. It's essentially the mental model is you make, if the drivers of all the Ubers out there had no human concerns, that's the economic, <laughs> like that's what the economic reality yeah. is. And then therefore it's, they have much more control over supply and demand in, in a very different way where it's not like there's no middle, like there, you don't have to incentivize someone to get up in the middle of the night or, or something like that and change their life. Like it's cheap for them to do these manipulations. The way I would put it is we already care about something that we already know to be necessary for life. And we now have unprecedentedly capable tools to make it what we want it to be. And it's not being discussed. It's not being worked on. It's not being, to use the phrase that we've circled before, it's not being deliberated about in a serious way. At least not that I'm aware of. Yeah, it seems that I guess the question I would like to have answered is like what the role of AI in most of these autonomous vehicle stacks is and what are the critical abilities it's enabling. Because then it's like in the case where AI is still developing so fast, it kind of shortcuts the capabilities to let's pe let people do things that they previously would not be able to try. And now that like we're feel we've felt that for a long time with new digital services coming about, and now it's kind of interfacing with more physical and real world institutions and services like Facebook is extremely disruptive to one thing, but something like self-driving cars, having a disruptive pace, it feels different. It's an interesting question. It's, it's the critical question because, and this is getting more into the technical nitty gritty of it, but of course with a self-driving car fleet, you've got any number of Rube Goldberg things happening. You've got localization, you've got sensing, you've got the computer vision stack. You've got the routing algorithm. You've got 
you know, whatever in-house interfaces there may be to coordinate these different things, whatever. You've got the simulation tools. What I'm articulating is, in terms of human experience, because we know we already care about these things, we know they're necessary for life, and we have tools that can intervene on them at scale. We could approach that organizationally rather than what seems to be the reality right now, which is that AI is being integrated in these very component level short-circuiting type ways where you're trying to optimize a particular aspect of a stack rather than inviting an organization of the stack that works towards human ends. I mean, like how do we, I, I feel like a lot of people will agree in spirit, but that's a question of how do we do this? And is it only through government regulation? And is that actually something that we want to invite? Yeah, a couple things there, right? I mean, government regulation is how self-driving cars are possible, of course, because government regulation is why there are roads at scale such that it's even interesting to work on this. Then there's the whole other story, which is even more kind of acerbic, which is the only reason there is this level of investment in the technology itself is because there's a great book by Mazzucato called The Entrepreneurial State, where she kind of makes this argument that, you know, the only reason there is Silicon Valley is because, you know, way back in the 50s and 60s, the federal government invested in like these major research labs and universities based you know, on the West Coast in a configuration such that a culture of asking these futuristic, hyper-technological questions was even possible. That's the other dimension of that. I think the third dimension of that, again, is that, and I can put this somewhat differently than I already did, because it clarifies the stakes. I think that social life and the reasons we value things like mobility or access or the other activities that are being disrupted with AI now. We value these things because they make sense to us and because they feel purposeful when you do them. And what that tells me is that to actually work on these organizational questions feels scary because we have already circumscribed the way we build the tool to an extremely minuscule dimension of what makes the activity make sense in the first place. In other words, it feels scary because we're unwilling to engage the entire reason we do the thing to begin with. And we're just not appropriating that. And the reality of the situation is driving education, electric, electricity and energy generation are problems that are more difficult than we automate, but less difficult than we fear. Yeah. Do you think it's good for, there's two populations to consider here. Do you think it's good for the everyday person that autonomous vehicles are being developed in the shadow of large language models? And like, do you think it's good for the companies? And are those necessarily correlated? It's like great cover. Like they like they're no longer the center of the story, and they were going to be slow burning. And I think they would they would be at this point regardless of if ChatGPT happened. They're totally independent. And like, what would be the 
level. Like, like if there was no language model story, people actually being able to use self-driving cars in San Francisco would probably by far away be the biggest AI story of the year. And rightly so. We're now actually living through, if you live in San Francisco or if you live in the Bay Area, we're literally overlooking a Bay Area highway as we <laughs> record this. We're now living through the A-B test. Like we're living through the actual real world experiment since the vote, you know, the the Public Utility Commission of San Francisco voted two to one to allow, you know, effectively uninhibited deployment of as many of these things as you got, put them on the roads, and we'll see what happens. That is the AI story of the year. Frankly, in some ways, it might still be. We're living through these hype cycles that the nature of hype is that it conditions your attention. It monopolizes it, it redirects it, and as we've been discussing, it short circuits a cohesive grasp of actually what is changing right now. Yeah, I, I would think that, like, while it pains me to support generative AI as like being a real thing, I think we've seen a lot. Like the the internet economy is what drives global trends now, and like I think generative AI is likely to be the biggest transformation there since the internet in terms of how content is created, shared, value is derived, and all of these things. So I so I do think that it's still likely to be a bigger story because like you look at the car companies, <laughs> their market cap versus the big tech companies, and the big tech companies are right. only going to be joined by AI companies. And I would say generative AI before self-driving by a long shot. It depends if you're counting which companies are inherently subsidized by the government. And if the like markets that those governments are inherently building but don't profit from, building roads are of actually the same value, but that's hard to measure. The way I would, there's a lot there that I agree with. The way I would put it is, there is a nonlinear relationship between how and when technical capabilities emerge in relationship with the human activities that they intervene on. So in a way, it's not surprising that journalists are going to lose their shit when a technology is developed and deployed that superficially intervenes on the kinds of things that they do. And the same goes for most of what we do online, which is read things or consume things or write things, precisely the kinds of media that this technology, chatbots, generative AI, is nominally able to do and appears able to do at scale. So again, we're in the world already. We do things in the world all the time in different parts of our lives. And there are different activities that we have like driving or like, you know, reading Twitter or other sorts of things that we do or work or whatever, or record podcasts that give our lives purpose and meaning in ways that are already structured. But then we're deploying these tools that unevenly intervene on these activities and our ability to make sense of them. It's like, I, I think that the self-driving companies 
given their kind of how I guess not all of them, but a lot of them are deeply tied at the hip to car companies, which are tied to other infrastructure, is likely to be much more engaged in the actual institutions than the things that generative AI is touching by how that technology rolls out. So you were kind of giving me a little spiel about education earlier, which is a similarly public institution and what it represents in society to infrastructure. I think there's clear differences, but it kind of illustrates how when these questions are not addressed in any way, how it could be like the self-driving car rollout in SF. Yes, there have been challenges, but like I, I pretty much think it's going to go fine. But like the generative AI rollout, I don't, there's still some huge question mark areas and education is one of them. I think that that's a good example of how in many ways it's easier. I mean, we were joking about this earlier. I wouldn't trust, you know, your average or even your superlative roboticist with telling me how roads should work, how traffic should flow, how we want to order vehicles to pick us up and drive in such a way. Those are human questions. So it's to some extent not their purview. Yeah. But even <laughs> the superlative roboticists that we're friends with, they make their couriers by understanding the story that research is on in terms of machine learning and what it is changing in technology and being the fastest to adapt to new trends and the best ones at understanding what people are not working on yet. And they work on those problems and they solve really interesting things, but they are not incentivized at all to really look into the bigger picture or what is actually happening. And even on top of that, it's still probably easier for us to talk about the bigger picture of roads than the bigger picture of education. Roads already exist. They've existed for a while ostensibly it's a deterministic environment that you're dealing with. Okay. We can quibble over how observable it is and in what ways that depends on certain sensors, but to an overwhelming degree, to an interesting degree, we have the tools in hand to either define the dynamics according to proxies that we trust or intervene on them with tools that, have capabilities that we understand. <laughs> and the thing is, neither of those things is really true when it comes to what is going to be the mature role of generative AI and chatbots with respect to education. We understand the capabilities of the tool less, and it's harder even for... Context is less defined. Like education already had those implicit argument of being like, is education secretly daycare or is it actually teaching people something? And it definitely did both. But I think now that it's so, in, like, information is so accessible and soon will be accessible in a way that's always tailored to the individual. Like, eventually, ChatGPT can just already know what you have asked it and what you have, like, demonstrated knowledge on. So it can tune its answers based on your previous conversations. There seems to be much less of a consensus what education is for in a way that has also changed over time. We've seen what the effects of COVID have been on college enrollments. The Supreme Court of the United States just ended affirmative action, right? This is a highly, to put it mildly, the dynamics of the environment are 
kind of up for grabs and there's serious basic disagreements about even what they should be. Or yeah. Can the, be. the timing of that case is remarkable with the context of AI because those are, those paths were being trodden independently, but the fact that they're at the same time just causes more change. The Supreme court doesn't decide things like, Oh, the speed limit should be 20 miles per hour higher now. <laughs> Right. That that's just that whole pipeline is just very, very different. States have a certain kind of discretion that's well understood, but also highways across different states tend to work basically the same way in terms of either how many lanes there are or how you switch lanes or a number of other things. Yeah, there's interesting cultural disagreements, if you want to call them that. Mass holes. <laughs> for example you know other parts of the country where people say oh they're friendly or people drive from california in the rain sure whatever <laughs> whatever it is right right but that's not the same for education if you were to ask a liberal what is the value in going to college they might tell you different things about it's to learn to be a good citizen or it's to learn how to acquire the skills that you will need to do well on the job market, or it's, they could give you any number of reasons that are different from each other. If you were to ask a Marxist what the purpose of education is, they'll just say to keep you out of the job market for four more years. <laughs> so if you look, there's a lot of work, research showing that like higher ed has advanced over time in different countries in proportion to basically how, how developed the economy is. And it's not really clear whether education prepares you for it by keeping you out of it or by giving you the skills you need to enter well, it. Yeah. And like in the AI case, it's like AI is not really going to change that people are attending school. It's changing like the homework and the learning process, which I think in some ways is even harder to bucket because I think parents still want to send their kids to school. Like they, they, that institutional <laughs> role still applies. And then there's this kind of, it almost feels like a bottoms up disruption where all of these teachers are going to be like, well, I can't do my old stuff. Like, you've got to help me. It's not clear right now what it means to assess students. It's not clear what are the kinds of skills you should assess them on. It's not clear what the role of the teacher is. Is that the great return of the standardized test? Like everyone was so down on standardized tests for so long. Yeah. And then in the background, they kind of were existing. And some places are probably going to regret their moves to go away from them if like education is so disrupted that teachers can't grade things. It's like it's literally going to be a test taking economy again. Not that I think that is equitable. It's just like it's, it's probably the shortest term solution. There's so much oscillation in it right now. I mean, famously, like very shortly after the emergence of ChatGPT, the New York City school system put a blanket ban on any use of chatbots in the classroom. A few months later, they not only rescinded that policy, but they actually adopted a policy that we should integrate chatbots into the curriculum as quickly and as intentionally as possible. And there were many reasons that they did that. One of which was it became clear that it's incredibly unfair to students from marginalized backgrounds to ban a technology when 
they need the school system. They need the resources of schools to even get online. Whereas the white kids don't, they're going to use this stuff at home, whether or not it's banned in the classroom. So really what you've done by putting a blanket ban is just prevent. Yeah, it's like some- if your kid is using ChatGPT, whether or not it's supportive and they're using it to learn, paying the $20 a month for the premium subscription to get GPT-4 would like easily be a huge aid in their learning. Like, and that'll only be, that'll always be the case. Like the best models for the next few years are going to be so much better. This is again returning. I mean, maybe it's weird to put it as cynical because it's kind of exhilarating at the same time, but like this sort of question of like, yeah, what is the value of ChatGPT plus or whatever? Is it $10 a month? Is it 20? Is it like, it's interesting, right? Because it's kind of beautifully arbitrary because it's almost by proxy. If you're a high school student, asking your parents for like however much whatever it's almost like it's almost like the proxy conversation is what is the value of my education (laughs) like how much are we willing to pay as a family for me to have access to a tool that is nominally a general purpose device for yeah it's the early career thing like i now regularly pay for services to make my career more streamlined and optimize for me to have more time to work on things it's like calendly or whatever ten dollars a month to make it so i don't have to send as many emails like mm-hmm. those things are all bets on the long-term availability of work time and or like this is the long-term availability of information and right so there's at least there's two different stories there that occur to me right now right one is all that's happening with education right now is we're just sort of lowering the age at which people have to do that kind of calculus, that kind of risk betting, right? Which is, okay, now I'm 15 or 16 or 17. And instead of paying however much to have an automatic Calendly that I don't have to personally monitor my invoice on, now I'm just betting on to what extent $10 a month is going to make a difference. Do you think higher education is almost more at risk because of the, the social factors entrenching middle school and elementary school where people need to send their kids to school. But now there's like more opportunity for people that are like, I'm interested in this thing. There's the means and the internet makes it so you can make money with it. It's like, well, that's the structural argument. Again, if the purpose, if, if a non-trivial portion of what education is, is keeping people out of, either the house or the job market or whatever it is, then yes, I think that tools that can provide many of the services that you were supposed to be getting from those eight hours a day or whatever it is that you're out of a house or longer, um, those are now up for grabs in this way. And that's going to have these economic effects that are very difficult to predict or understand. Because at least right now, it's at the discretion of students or their parents or individual actors, in other words, whether they buy into this stuff. But in this larger sense, there will need to be policies around what does responsible integration of these devices look like, where we're admitting that a new articulation of the aims of education is called for because it's occasioned by a tool that is automating much of what the original articulation was of that purpose is. And again, to return to the theme of our discussion, which is, I guess, why I'm feeling cynical. It's the fact that 
I want that to be what's being put in front of our attention spans and which we're invited to reflect on rather than, rather even than, oh, uh, how many hours a day of my work schedule can I shave off because now I have ChatGBT to talk to or write emails for me. That, that I think is a much less interesting conversation and ultimately more trivial conversation relative to the fact that what's different about education is that after four years, you have a college degree and you're nominally supposed to be a different kind of person, a different kind of agent. You've accumulated unique experiences over those four years or however long that have oriented you to the world in a new way, in a qualitatively transformative way. And that's what's at stake. And again, that is what's different from roads because roads are much more consistent. They're much more deterministic. They're much more observable. They're much more controllable. In a way, the whole purpose of education is to change the thing that you're imparting this knowledge to, that you're providing this information to. And that's what's really being, that's what's, I think, really at stake here. To what extent are we still allied to that vision? Or are we not? Because we maybe now recognize that all college ever was really good for was preparing you to enter or preserve your place in the middle class. Yeah, I almost see it as like a reality creation of like people knew that you could make it careers on the internet but no one really knew how and now i feel like there's just like this ai that is so accessible makes it so it's easier to seed more paths that people would not think of and just like that is inherently very disruptive because a lot of the economy is around having stable expectations on where people go and how people change their careers and things like this and that kind of short circuits a lot of assumptions that people have made there's a famous commencement address by David Foster Wallace, who is a, a novelist. This is be water. <laughs> or what, what this is, is water. This yeah. is water. I don't think you and I have discussed this before, actually. No, I, I'm familiar with it. So this is a commencement address that he gave to Kenyon College in Ohio, where... It's a very interesting speech for lots of reasons, but what the kind of key point of it is, is he's trying to articulate what is the value of a liberal arts education, or if you want to be really pedantic, a liberal arts degree. <laughs> Why do that? <laughs> and what he says is that what the liberal arts in general are trying to impart, although it's always implicit, is the ability to learn what to pay attention to and how to make meaning from your experience. In other words, I would say what he's articulating is something like the liberal arts are about making you into an active participant in your experience of things rather than a, a passive repository of experiences that are kind of being thrown at you thinking about the effects of tools like chat gpt like generative ai applications in that regard is interesting 
because it remains, it seems to me, totally unclear whether they make us more passive or if they can help us find our footing in new ways. If there is something about your interactions with a chatbot over time, maybe, or even in one session that can enrich your understanding of whatever it is you're trying to learn about. It's not clear to what extent they help or hinder the mission of what was called in that case, a liberal arts approach. Yeah. I feel like the people that come to these tools with the acceptance of uncertainty and discovering importance have increasing leverage. But when you are not presented that reality, the general collapse will just to be to short term incentives, which is like economic incentives or career incentives or school incentives, which that liminal space between like the point of education and these kind of complex curriculums will collapse. I think it would be like there's not the incentive to have people explore this space, even though it's potentially easier to debate with yourself with it because you can have an entity that'll help you gather this information in context. So I think that's the right thing to worry about. The way that the place I encountered this in the past is like the podcaster Peter Atia that's into longevity. Like this is the speech that he points to as like getting clarity around what is important in life and how to motivate for careers and like how to understand that things are transient and that you may not be important, but you can still have meaning. It's like, I believe that also as like as individuals, we're not important, but it's still important to seek for meaning because of what it means to be human. And that's kind of, I've heard uh, he brings it up all the time in his podcast, which is why it's pretty funny to have the other context of education. So to seek meaning, to become wise or wiser, to mature, seems to rest on this ability to pay attention to the terms of your experience. You know, we're all confronted with this field in front of us all the time. I mean, I'm happen to be looking at you right now, but there's also, you know, my LaCroix on this table <laughs> and <laughs> there's a bunch of junk here that could be distracting me. Right. But to approach any field of sensation with intent means that certain objects in it stand out to you for reasons that are yours to define. Yeah. And that's profound. And nominally, that's at the heart of what a good education provides. It's not to give you the right taxonomy of naming the objects in front of your field of vision, right? Becoming an ornithologist doesn't just mean you know the names of birds. (laughs) Although that is something you learn in the course of it. You learn what it is that birds are. Yeah, and why and, that matters. And I think that this is what generative AI risks is because these technologies will have things that are measured and we're going to be interfacing with... It's just the next wave of digitizing our life in ways that is measured. And when there are things that are measured, there are going to be pressures on how we consume things. And I think that that pressure will collapse what was previously the space for consideration. I mean, like, I see that in myself. Like, it's a constant battle to, like balance the 
the easy executing of work with the being able to like have a chill approach to it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So the much more erudite pretentious way, I would say, I think my version of that is that there's this ancient idea that all the knowledge worth learning fits within what was called like an organon, a compendium, a structure, right? There are the fields that there are. There are the disciplines that there are because that matters, right? So whether it's botany or physics or poetry, right? But the point was there was only so many and that that mattered because this is the structure of human experience. This is the structure of humans' relationship with reality. And we don't build chatbots that way right now. We sort of just throw shit at them. They soak it up kind of like a giant, infinitely large sponge. And then we play with them. (laughs) And we see how that feels. And ultimately, what I suspect, although I admit that this is just a hunch right now, and I would not put myself in the position of claiming any kind of authority to what should be done here, I suspect that to resolve this question of what is the proper role of Gen AI with respect to education will ultimately require, it implies something like rearticulating that question. What is the organon off of which these models should be learning? Yeah, I can't see that being contestable in our current situation of politics at all. <laughs> like this, this is like this is why it's like a lot of the things that are running headfirst into it. AI is like it's not going to be pretty, but it's going to be pretty wildly interesting, and, the, and that's what I appreciate about it. Is just like being involved and trying to have some marginal influence. It's like, it's all we can do. It's like, I'm not, I'm not going to be called upon, nor would I have the answers in prerequisite. Can I give a, a hot take that? Yeah, this is, well, there's a part of end with the hot takes. <laughs> this is a pretty hot one that, that might seem unrelated, but I'll see if I can stick the landing on it. I don't agree with the orthogonality thesis. Orthogonality of what? This is the idea. This came originally, you know, credit wherever it's due or whatever the fuck that like Nick Bostrom wrote in Superintelligence, okay, which is this very influential idea in certain circles that increasing intelligence has no correlation, no intrinsic relationship with purposiveness or goal-seeking. In other words, and this is this the orthogonality thesis, in other words, it's just that idea. That intelligence, they're that, they're, that they're, that's right, that they're separate. And that's a, that makes us safe, right? Well... <laughs> The reason it's important, of course, is that that, I'll call it an assumption, okay? That assumption underpins these much more famous thought experiments like the paperclip maximizer, right? That you can have an infinitely intelligent AI that just is blissfully happy building paperclips until it turns the entire observable universe, including ourselves, into paperclips, even though it was nominally for us that it's even meaningful to do that. That's the purpose of that assumption. That's the work that it does. I don't think it's true. I suspect, for various reasons, which we might get into in future, future episodes, that there's a much more integral relationship between intelligence understood in the sense of faculties that are naturally directed towards certain ends. 
and that deep down, that's the reason why I'm comfortable still hypothesizing, having this hunch that we do need something like an organon off of which these models should be trained. Because implicitly, that's what it would mean for them to be meaningful. And that's what it mean, would mean for them to be useful for what will be the future of human education, is that they are learning off a compendium of what we take to be the knowledge that is meaningfully structured about what is worthwhile to know. So with the release of the next episode, we're going to release World Book GPT. <laughs> <laughs> it's been done we can get we can do an episode on the uh, the encyclopedia which both caused and ended the uh, classical enlightenment <laughs> yeah and i think this is a reasonable place to end anything else to add on this kind of institution mm. bridge mm. comparing roads to education you know yeah as long as I'm waxing a little bit philosophic, I'll end on this note. Like, we wonder, like, there's this garbage in, garbage out. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Is AI really just a bunch of hokey nonsense of, like, what are these things actually learning? I think that what we're learning as we build them is that the old questions are put in new clothes, and we learn how to articulate them differently and more precisely. That's, I think, for me, a certain kind of gateway out of the cynicism is that maybe there is nothing new under the sun. Oh, I think there is. I mean, it's regular on the Twitter circles. There's only three ideas in all of machine learning. It's like rejection sampling, I don't know, linear regression, and something else. It's like all the people just recycle the same ideas. We we recycle, maybe it's only old wine in the bottles. I suspect, though, that these tools are really making us turn the lens on ourselves in these new ways. And we're able to ask questions of education and transportation and any number of other domains, activities, in new, more precise, and scarier ways, because it's us in a way coming into our own as a species. That's really what I think is being asked of us. Yeah, I think so. I think this is a good place to wrap up. It was fun having you here. The rare in-person pod in our not-real fancy studio. (laughs) So thanks for listening and catch you later. Bye for now.